right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of 1 John tonight. The book of 1 John. 1 John and chapter 2. The book of 1 John and chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 26. So 1 John chapter 2. We've been in the book of 1 John on Wednesday nights. And so let's go ahead and stand uh, in reverence to God's word. We're going to begin reading verse number 26 of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 26 says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth, teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask now that, Lord God, your spirit of truth would lead and guide us tonight. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the word of truth that we have before us. Lord God, may we uh, hear it tonight. May we apply it. And Father God, consequently, may we live according to it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know that this section actually begins in verse number 18, where it says, little children, it is the last time. This epistle was written by the apostle partly because of the false teachers that were teaching their heresy and leading people out of the church. Verse number 19 says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. And of course, those were the false teachers. And then, of course, those that were uh, following those false teachers. We've labeled it Gnosticism. It was the heresy being taught by those who claimed to have special insight into the word of God. And of course, that. Uh, will bring to light why John is writing what he is writing in verse number 26. The, I'm sorry, verse 27. Um, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Now, of course, a lot of people will use that portion of Scripture to teach that you don't have to go to church. We all have the Spirit of God. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You don't, ha you don't have any need that any man teach you. And so you can just go ahead, worship in the woods, worship in the ocean, read your Bible, uh, because you don't, have, uh, you, don't, you don't have any need. Of course, that is not the context in which John is writing this. Uh, the context is the Gnostics that were teaching you that they had some special revelation from God and you needed to hear what they had to say. Understand this, you don't need a Bible scholar uh, to understand the word of God. The Bible says that it makes wise the simple, but that does not negate our need to be in church, to worship together. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. Um, that uh, that that uh, actually being in church and 
helps you to be grounded, it helps you to be nourished, and it also helps you to be edified. Gnosticism was the heresy uh, that was being taught, and not only did they teach that they had some special insight into the Word of God, and you needed that special insight if you wanted to understand it, kind of like what Satan taught Eve back in the Garden of Eden, but also that God could not have come in the flesh because God cannot join himself with matter. And that's why uh, some of the strong things being uh, said uh, by John, verse number 22 of 1 John chapter 2 um, says, uh, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? This is what they were denying, that God came in the flesh because God cannot join himself with matter because matter or flesh is only used for one thing, and that is sensual living. And that, of course, is how the Gnostics would, um, that's how they would justify living the ungodly life that they, that they are living. And so that, of course, brings us to verse number 29. You know that God is righteous. You know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So we're going to look at these things. As I said, the, the Gnostics, they proclaimed some things. Now, like modern-day Bible scholars, uh, they said you must depend on them to give you the real digs or the real nuggets found in Scripture. They would not have liked the local New Testament church in Berea because in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says that they were noble in Berea because they searched the Scriptures. They did it themselves. They searched the Scriptures and they searched the scriptures to see if what the Apostle Paul was teaching was true or not. And of course, once they searched the scriptures, they found it was true. Any pastor preaching the word will have no problem with members who search the word. As a matter of fact, he'll encourage members, search the word. What is it that Jesus confronted the Pharisees with? He confronted the Pharisees, which, by the way, were a type of Gnostic, Oh, you uh, the plain people can't understand the word. And, and, and Jesus told them, search the scriptures in them, you'll find me. And, uh, of course, he also told them in not so many words that if they'll search the scriptures, they'll find they themselves are not saved and need to be saved. And so God's word is true. And we trust God's word to be true. We know God's word is to be taken literally and that we apply it as such. So there are four things that God reveals to us that false teachers will always try to undermine, and I want us to look at those four things tonight, and then John alludes to them here. Four things that God's Word teaches us that false teachers will try to undermine. The first thing is they will try to undermine God's anointing. They're going to try to undermine God's anointing. You see, the Gnostics, they established a kind of priesthood, if you will. But you need to understand, and I know you do understand, that once you are saved, you are anointed by God. You are uh, God's anointed. Matter of fact, the Bible says of us that we are a royal priesthood. In verse number 27 the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. So we're talking about the anointing of the believer here. 
All believers are anointed by the Holy Spirit. They, are, uh, they have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And jo Jesus said that this would be the case. And once again, you see so many things that John writes in his letter. You can go back and you can establish it in his gospel. In John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse number 38, Jesus in teaching said this, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Now, that scripture goes on to say that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit as of yet. My the special anointing was going to take place after Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And he promised us this. He says, uh, uh, as he was going to ascend into heaven, he was not going to leave us comfortless, but he was going to send the comforter, also the anointer, and he would be with us. This anointing was first given uh, uh, to the apostles before Christ's ascension. Um, John chapter 20, verse number 22, when Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible tells us that when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now this was a new thing. We, knew in the, we know in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit would come on people and the Holy Spirit would also leave people. We saw that with Samson and we saw it even with, with, uh, with Saul. Uh, however, in the New Testament, once you receive the Holy Ghost, you never lose the Holy Ghost. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we are sealed with that spirit of promise. And so it was give, first given to the apostles there in John chapter 20, verse 22. The apostles passed the gift on to believers, some by the laying on of hands by the apostles for identification purposes. You see that in Acts chapter 8 there. Uh, with uh, the Samaritan believers. Uh, we know this, that today no apostle is going to lay his hand on you. The apostles are gone. Uh, through the process of time, it became instantaneous. When you believed on Jesus as your personal Savior, you received the Spirit. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So, so sometimes between... Oh, the establishing of the Christians there in Samaria and the establishing of the church there in Ephesus. And by the way, remember that the book of Acts, it is the church in its infancy. Things happened there in the book of Acts that were not to be permanent. We know that uh, tongues would cease. We know that prophecies would cease. Uh, now, getting to the book of uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13. Let's back up to verse number 12 because it establishes it for us here. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. Verse number 13 now, in whom ye also trusted. After that, ye heard the word of the truth. So 
he's talking to Christians here, obviously. They heard the word of the truth. They did not reject the word of the truth. They accepted the word of the truth. They accepted the word of God. They accepted Christ as their savior. The Bible tells us that once they heard the word of the truth, they trusted the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And so now when someone trusts in Christ as their personal savior, that Holy Spirit immediately, it's not something that that takes place weeks later or months later. It happened immediately. As soon as you believe, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And uh, John writes about this. And John says in, in 1 John chapter 2 here, that the anointing which ye have received, when did you receive that anointing? When you believed, when you accepted Christ as your Savior. You, uh, you received that anointing. You received the Holy Spirit. You received the, the sealing, if you will, the anointing which ye have, re, which ye have received. Um, not only is there the anointing of the believer, There's also the anointing of the church. Uh, The church was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth is in agreement with the word of truth and reminding us that the church was not only instituted by God, it was anointed by God. And of course, there we see that in the book of Acts and and, and chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost came upon uh, that very first church there. John says that we need no man to teach us. Here's the thing. We need no man-made organization to teach us. We have the Holy Spirit abiding with us. He leads and guides us into all truth. One of the truths the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in, if you allow him, is you need to be serving in a local New Testament church. God's institution We need no man-made organization, but we do need God's church to help us reach our ultimate potential as Christians. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse number 11, the Bible says that he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some teachers, pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. By the way, what's the body of Christ? That's the church. And we know that. Till we all come in the unity of faith, that's God's goal, is that we come in the unity of faith. We are united in one faith. Not not diversity of faiths and diversity of doctrines and diversity of teachings. But we all come in the unity of one faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleigh of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And so while we can see there that the Holy Spirit will lead us to be taught to be edified in the body of Christ. Also, you can do more for Christ through the church than on your own. 
I mean, one of the reasons, you know, God's uh, very first observation. And we know God doesn't, nothing occurs to God. Whenever it sounds like that, it's only because God's trying to teach us something. But the very first observation that God made of man was this. It's not good for man to be alone. And, you know, um, of course, we know that uh, that led uh, uh, God to creating and help me for him, establishing and instituting uh, the family, because that was a good thing. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. In the New Testament, my, because we were going to be cast-offs, Jesus established the local New Testament church and said not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but, but we are to exhort one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, we're going to be cast-offs, and therefore we need the encouragement. It's not good for a man to be alone. Two are better than one, a threefold cord is not is not uh, soon or quickly broken the church can do more than you can by yourself in regards to missions giving soul winning boy service there are many areas in the church for us to serve in letting your light shine for the lord in uh once again john chapter 9 let's go ahead and turn to john chapter 9 john chapter 9 The book of John chapter 9, we'll do a lot of turning tonight in our Bibles. John chapter 9, John chapter 9, verse number 5. In John chapter 9, verse number 5, Jesus said this, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But we know that his ministry only lasted for three years. Three and a half years later, he died, was buried, he rose again, and then he spent a little over a month here before he ascended back into heaven. And he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, now that he is gone, Matthew chapter 5, the book of Matthew and and chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 14, Matthew chapter 5. And I know this is reviews, uh, a review for so many of you, but man, I, I, with, with the doctrine of the church being attacked, I think it does us well to understand my, why do we come together? Why do we worship together? Why an assembly? Matthew chapter 5, verse number 14. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 14. Okay, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, when he's gone, he says, ye are the light of the world. Now, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Now, in modern day terms, when you and I think of a candle, we probably think of a single candle. And we put that single candle on a single candlestick, and there it, it, it raises it a little bit higher. But if you think about it, it really doesn't do much for the light of that candle, other than it allows it to stand. But in New Testament terms, when Jesus was talking about this, 
uh, a candle is actually a lamp, and then you'd put the lamp on a lampstand, and there was always, there's, there was more than one, so it would, it would light things up. As a matter of fact, we, we'll see this here in a little bit, but let, let's, um, uh, let's look at this, verse number 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Now, when we come to the book of uh, Revelations, the book of Revelations, let's turn over there. See, all these are, are connected. Jesus says, when I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he says, uh, uh, you are going to be the light of the world. And then he says, as a light of the world, you want to put yourself on a, on a candlestick or on a candle stand, if you will. And so in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, let's go ahead and go to chapter 1, book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1. Verse number 12. And John writes once again, and I turned to see the voice and that spake with me and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the man the son of man clothed with the garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with the golden girdle his head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, and if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That becomes very evident. This is Jesus. He was uh, uh, alive and then was dead and is alive forevermore, having the keys of hell and of death. Verse number 19, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now without getting on into all of the uh, symbolism here, we know that the seven churches were represented by seven churches there in Asia to which the book of Revelation would go. Um, but but nothing is in the word of God by accident. Jesus started by saying, I am the light of the world as long as I'm in the world. And then he said to his believers, ye are the light of the world. And then he gave them instructions. As the light of the world, as an individual Christian, you don't hide yourself under a bushel. You don't just go to the, uh, the beach and worship the Lord there in private and say, um, now I, I've done my thing. No, as an individual uh, light, 
you join yourself to a candlestick, which the book of Revelations tells us is symbolic of what? The church. And our light shines brightest when we are on a candlestick, when we are in a lampstand, when we, uh, when, we, when we work together as a local New Testament church. Hey, the, the church is founded by Christ, established by Christ, loved by Christ, blessed by Christ. We are encouraged to join a church by Christ, and the church is anointed by the Holy Ghost and given the power and the authority to carry out Christ's work. And this authority was given to no individual. It was given to the church. You and I are anointed in that we are sealed by the Holy Ghost. Uh, The church is anointed in that it has the power to carry out the work of God. And we can do so much more in the church. My and the church are given the opportunity to be a complete Christian. To be, uh, uh, well, as we read there in the book of Ephesians, a, a perfect man. That means mature, complete, not without sin, but mature and complete. You'll not be a mature Christian if you are not in a local church, serving in that local, chur- local church. You know, since being a member of Corridor Baptist Church, I've been able to do things that I could not have done on my own. As a church, we started churches in Russia. As a church, we planted a church in Republic Washington that, by the way, is still there and doing a great job. As a church, we planted several churches in Papua New Guinea that are still there and that have also established the Bible Institute and are doing a great job. As a church, we planted a church in Kennewick, Washington, which is still there and doing a great job. Uh, My light has shined bright around the globe since allowing God to place me in this candlestick. I wouldn't have been able to do a single one of those things on my own. Your light shines brightest when you're in a candlestick, when you join a church and become part of that church. You know, false teachers will always try to undermine the wonderful anointing of our Savior, of the Holy Ghost. But not only will they uh, undermine the, the anointing of God, they'll also try to undermine the abiding of God. Um, get back to First John, if you will, First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse number 27. The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. Again, when you believed, you received that Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Uh, God abides with us. Now, the Greek word that is translated abideth right here, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth. It means to stay. Uh, not to uh, not to stay conditionally, but to stay permanently. Man, aren't you glad that once you're saved? Here's just another proof that once you're saved, you're always saved. That his anointing abides with you. The Holy Spirit of God is with us 
to stay. You know, his promise is that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we were reminded of that in Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse number 5. We can sing with a surety. He abides. He abides. Hallelujah. He abides in me. Not only in the abiding of God, but, you know, believers need to abide. First John 2, uh, 27, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. You need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And so he abides with us, but he also expects us to abide in him. You know, God's promise is that he'll constantly abide. And it's a challenge to believers. If he's constantly going to abide, and we sing that constantly abiding, Jesus is mine. If he constantly abides with with us and, and does it unconditionally, We need to constantly abide with him. Abiding in God, it means abiding in his truth, not our own preferences. You know, sometimes abiding in God's truth means you're going to get hurt. It means that you're going to, um, well, sometimes just not agree. (laughs) Sometimes in abiding in God, we get hurt. We don't have a license to get out because God doesn't take a license to get out of us. He constantly abides. Abiding in God means abiding in his truth. It means abiding in his church. It means walking in accordance to his doctrine. Uh, First Timothy, let's uh, take a look at a couple of these uh, scriptures um, First Timothy chapter three, verse number 15, one you probably know by heart. First Timothy chapter three, verse number 15. First Timothy chapter three, verse number 15. It says, "But if I tarry long, that thou may, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God." which is the church of the living God. That's where we're supposed to be. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Another one you probably know by heart. Ephesians 5, verse number 25. In Ephesians 5, 25. Okay, the word of God says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. God wants us in the church. He loves the church. He gave himself for it. He wants to present it to himself. We ought to want to be a part of that. Well, it means walking in accordance also to his doctrine. 
We know, again, another one, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And um, I pray you never get tired of these scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. And there's that word once again, mature, complete, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Means that we walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.25 reminds us if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. It's not only God's promise and his obligation to abide with us. God expects us out of love and gratitude to abide in him. We can sing of God. He abides. He abides. Hallelujah. He abides with me. But can God sing the same about us? You know, we are all familiar with the narrative in the book of Job when all the sons of God, that means all the angels were coming to give an account to God. And when Satan, when it was his time and, and God asked him what he'd been up to, and he said, going up and down upon the earth, and, and, and God kind of sang the song about Job. He abides, he abides. Hallelujah, Job abides with me. And Satan says, well, his abiding with you is conditional. Why, you take away everything he has. You have blessed him so much. You take away everything he has. He'll no longer abide with you. And so Satan took everything that Job has or Job had, everything that he owned, including his children. And when he came back, God was able to sing once again. He abides. He abides. Hallelujah. Job abides with me. The Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and that's exactly what he does right there. He accuses the brethren. He accused Job. You know, some of us, and I say us, I don't mean us here collectively. I mean us as Christians, us as the family of God. Some of us, Satan never has to accuse because we accuse ourselves. Job, on the other hand, was walking with God, being pleasing to God, and therefore Satan wanted to accuse Job. God, God's anointing is oftentimes attacked by those or undermined by those false teachers. God's abiding also is often undermined by those false teachers. But, but number three, those false teachers will also try to undermine God's appearing, his appearing. You know, John finishes this up, getting back to 2 John. He, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, John finish this, uh, finishes up this, this little section here by saying this. He says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, 
that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know, false teachers will often try to undermine this appearing of God. They'll say it's it, it's not literal. Don't take things in the Bible so literally. First of all, we know concerning the appearing of Christ. Christ literally came. The Gnostics denied that. Christ literally died. Many quote Bible scholars deny that. He literally rose, bodily rose. There are even many quote Bible scholars that deny that. But Jesus is literally coming back. And there are many who deny that. But John said concerning his, uh, his first appearing, we saw him, we handled him, we ministered with him, we talked with him. He was there. He was real. John also says he's coming back. John wrote in John chapter 14 concerning a discussion that they had with Jesus. In John 14, verse number two, Jesus said this to his disciples in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You know, we are told when Paul writes to the Thessalonians that one day Jesus is going to appear in the clouds, and we which are alive and remain will go and join him. The dead in Christ shall rise first. They're not going to miss out. But we which are alive and remain are going to join him. And the Bible says that so shall we ever be with him. This is what he's talking about. This was the promise Jesus gave. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I heard a preacher one time say, you know, it, it, it took God six days to create this. Now, if he's been up there for the last 2,000 years preparing a place for us, imagine what that place is going to be like. Now, I don't know that he's been working on it for these last 2,000 years. I don't know that that's what that means. But I do know this. It's beyond our wildest imagination. It is so great that when we try to read about the descriptions of it uh, in the Bible, it's beyond us. Just trust God. Sunday morning, I'm going to uh, preach a message. In God, we should trust. Um, just trust God. Man, everything he said, ha everything he has said and everything he has promised has been better than what we could imagine. And we just need to trust him. You know, many Christians say they believe that God is going to appear, but they sure don't live like it. You know, that God could appear at any time. There's nothing keeping the rapture from happening tonight. But we ought to live, ur live with urgency and with diligence because God could come at any time. But I, wanna, I want to uh, switch things over to the other side. If he's going to appear... That means that we must also appear before him. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Well, just because we may go in the rapture 
doesn't mean we are going to escape some kind of judgment. Now, if you're saved, your judgment is not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of reward. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse number 10 that we, including himself, all Christians, we're not going to appear before the great white throne judgment. Thank the Lord for that. That's the judgment of condemnation. But we are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's us. That's Christians. That's, the, that's those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior. We are going to give an account for what we did with our salvation. And we are going to stand before God. And really, there's only two things, that one of two things that God will say, well done, thou good and faithful, you took the salvation, you took the gift, and, and you took the other gifts and the talents that I gave you. Your good health, your abilities, and you used them all for the glory of God. You used them all for the kingdom. You used them all to try to get others to know Christ as, your, as, as their personal Savior. Well done. You were diligent. You were zealous. May I say it? You were fanatical. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And every time the doors were open, you hungered and thirsted for righteousness. You were there. Anytime there was an opportunity to serve, you volunteered. Just as the Son of Man, Son of God, came not to be ministered to, but, but to minister. I set the example. You followed that example. Well done, thou good and faithful. Or he is going to say to those servants who are lazy and apathetic, well, you're saved, but you are wicked and slothful with your salvation. Now, one of two things, two grades that, that we can get, you know, Many Christians, I said, say they believe in Christ's appearing, but perhaps they forgot we have to appear before him. But another thing that we ought to consider, every day we appear before others. You know, in Revelation chapter 14 and in verse number 13, um, I guess this is why it's called the book of Revelation, because it reveals things to us. In Revelation chapter 14 and in verse number 13, you've heard me say this before. There's not exactly going to be equality in heaven. That after your salvation, which is free, salvation is free. You couldn't, none of us could earn it. So therefore, God provided it for us. You cannot work for your salvation. You can, however, work for your rewards. And in Revelation chapter 14, Revelation 14, verse number 13. Let's go ahead. Let's back up. Revelation 14, verse number 12. Revelation 14, verse number 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. 
And I heard the voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. So now here's the commandment to John. John, get a pen. Write this down. It will be preserved. And Christians of all generations are going to read it. Write this. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Do follow them. We take our works to heaven with us. Well, I thought we weren't saved by works. You're not. You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. However, you are blessed by works. And, your, uh, and, our, and our works follow us. That is why we hear in the New Testament constantly about crowns being earned and, and how to earn those crowns. And boy, why we want to have a, a, an abundant reception in heaven, not just barely a reception in heaven. So we are going to stand. Your, your works will follow you. And um, there are other things that revealed. We're not going to uh, look at those. Uh, listen, God's anointing often undermined by the false teachers. God's abiding often undermined by the false teachers. God's appearing often undermined by the false teachers. But then there's this last one. They often undermine the godly application of God's word. Verse number 29 says this. 1 John chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. God expects us to take these things and apply them and live according to them. Look again at verse number 28. Now little children abide in him. Now we know he abides in us. Here's the command, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, how can we have confidence if we live righteously? Verse, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, by the way, that's rhetorical statement right there. Is God righteous? Absolutely God is righteous. Is God holy? Absolutely, God is holy. Matter of fact, the word of God says that we are to be holy. We're to strive to be holy because God is holy and he has set the example. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Now, this is right into the face of the Gnostics who are living their lives. They were they were they were living carnally and then justifying it by saying, well, you know, we live in the flesh. And this is the flesh that we're living in. Nobody's perfect. And, and the flesh, it's, it's all about sensuality. And, and don't give me that, uh, uh, that baloney that, that God came in the flesh because deity cannot join with uh, that which is material or that which is carnal. It just doesn't work. Well, actually, it did work. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect sinless life he was tempted in all ways like as we are which he could not have done outside of the flesh 
tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. Hey, this is a fact no professing Christian would deny. Not only is God righteous, his word is righteous. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect. So those of us who are born again should also live righteously. Live separated lives. Who abides in us? It's God, the righteous. So how then can the Gnostics teach that it matters not what you are on the outside so long as you're saved on the inside? And by the way, that's the teaching of many churches today. Don't judge a book by its cover. Well, you know, there's a lot of things you can learn about a book by its cover. You're not going to be able to know everything by its cover. But there are some things you're going to be able to learn by its cover. First of all, is the book used? Is it often used? Man, a book that is never used, you're going to be able to tell that by its cover. A book that is never read. A book that is never applied. I got a, a Bible for graduation, my college graduation. It was my grandfather's Bible that I had never met because he, uh, because he, he died before I was born. He never got a chance to use that Bible, and I know this because the wrapping was still on the box, and when you opened it up, even though it was decades old, it looked brand new. There's one thing I could tell about that Bible. It had never been used. There are some things you can, you're not going to be able to know everything. But, hey, if you're saved on the inside and you're living righteously on the inside, is that not going to show on the outside? If God is using you, Boy, like that book that obviously you can tell has been used. It's been well-worn. You can tell that by the cover. Some of them you can tell by the lack of a cover. A Christian who's used of God, you're going to be able to tell by, by, uh, by looking, by observing. Boy, those who could, uh, would judge accurately would say, and if I have a sinless, separated God in me, that should cause me to want to be the same. The church isn't to appeal to the world by trying to be like the world. The church is supposed to be pleasing to God. It's supposed to mirror God. It's not called the body of the world. It's called the body of Christ. The church being the body of Christ should be like Christ. John 1, 5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it. Uh, not, you know, one thing, if you are in a pitch black room and someone turns a light on, doesn't matter how big the light, how small the light, that light changes the room. It's not the room that changes the light. You know what the sad thing about is about, and you hear this term a lot, modern day Christianity is modern-day Christianity has been changed an awful lot by the world. And it really hasn't done a whole lot to change the world around it. The church is supposed to be 
the light, not the other way around. According to Christ, it, it does matter how we live our lives. Those who've truly been born again and have applied him to their lives are going to live as such. Matthew 7, 20, by their fruits, you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. There is something that follows genuine salvation, and that is doing the will of God. Doing the will of God oftentimes means not doing the will of the flesh. We're in this middle of the Christmas season. And you know, you really can't overstate the characters of the Christmas story. My, I think about Mary and how that night that God visited her, her life would never be the same. The Bible tells us in verse number 34 of Luke chapter 1, then said, Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Here's a young girl who had absolutely no immediate aspirations of having a child. She wasn't even married yet. She was espoused. She was engaged, which was just as binding, but not married yet. We know she knew Joseph, but she did not yet know Joseph. How can this be, seeing I know not a man? Verse number 35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Verse number 37 says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. Have you ever thought about how those verses completely changed her life? I mean, here this young girl had, had, had goals. She had aspirations, and not bad ones. I mean, obviously here she had the goal of being married. She was a spouse. She was engaged. She had the goal of keeping herself clean until marriage. She made that very clear, and Scripture makes that very clear, that a virgin would give birth, a virgin would conceive. And now she's going to be pregnant. She's going to be ridiculed. She's going to be questioned. And as far as she's concerned, she doesn't even know if Joseph is going to stay with her now. All of these things had to run through her mind. And yet immediately when God says, Mary, I need you, in verse number 38, she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. I don't think that we quite understand how binding that statement was. I mean, she was going to be a single pregnant gal. And if Joseph didn't believe her at first, I guarantee you very few people did. 
completely changed her life. It changed the course of her life. It changed, I'm sure, the way people viewed her, the way people looked at her. You know, a lot of people who come to know Christ as personal Savior have given up reputations. They've given up jobs. They've given up the will of the flesh so that they could be pleasing to him. The Gnostics did not want to give that up. They wanted to call themselves of God and still live like the world, much like modern-day Christianity today would like to do. John says, doesn't work that way. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And if we don't, we're going to be ashamed at his coming. Boy, does the spirit of truth abide in us. Better yet, do we abide in the spirit of truth? Let's have every head bowed. With every head bowed, with every eye closed.